In February 2019, EFCA pastors and church leaders gathered at Trinity International University, Deerfield, Illinois, for the annual theology conference. As part of this conference, there was a luncheon lecture with Kevin Van Hooser on the topic of pastor theologian. Did you now know that I must be about my father's business, becoming a pastor theologian? On this podcast, we learn from Kevin as he addresses becoming a pastor theologian by asking and answering five key questions. Why pastor theologian? Why pastor as public theologian? What are the roles of the pastor theologians? How do pastor theologians make disciples? And how can pastors grow into their role as theologians? Kevin serves as research professor of systematic theology, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, Deerfield, Illinois. Introduction of how how uh, Kevin and I came about what he's going to say. Okay, uh, uh, Kevin does serve as a research professor of systematic theology. He has taught at TEDS here three different stages, 1986 to 90, uh, to 1998 to 2009, and 2012 to the present. And what keeps him bringing him back here and has kept him here now is his calling, gifting, and passion to train and equip pastors and leaders for local church ministry. Here's the question that I posed. After having trained and prepared students for pastoral ministry in the classroom, they are now in the local church. What is the biblical and theological counsel or instruction you would give to them to stay the course and developing the habits and disciplines of being and becoming a pastor theologian? So as he shares, let me open in a word of prayer, please. Father, we are thankful for the, the things that we have learned thus far, the, the, uh, the spiritual nourishment uh, we receive. Thank you here now for the physical nourishment we receive as well. Every good and perfect gift comes from your hand, and we give you thanks. Lord, thank you for the wonderful privilege it is to be called your adopted son, daughter, and, and then to be... Uh, poured back out in the church, to serve the church, to serve your people. And Lord, we want to be faithful, under-shepherds, pastor-theologians. Thank you for Kevin, as he uh, has equipped uh, so many, and as he is here now today to help us to remain faithful uh, to the task of the model of a pastor-theologian. I thank you for his friendship as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Greg, for the invitation to be here. And thank you all. It just doesn't feel like work at all. This is what I live for. And so I really am grateful for a chance. I'm sorry it's so short. I've written out some comments just to make sure that I can give you some time for a question and answer. Um, this is not going to be so much about the nuts and bolts as a broader vision. Because as you'll see from my comments, I think having the right vision is really the most important thing. Although I did give you a handout with some resources, the most important one is a center for pastor theologians. That's a no-brainer. But if you don't know about it, I'd encourage you to look at the website. They are producing books. They've got their own journal. The 
uh, vision for that organization is that this is theology done for the church, in the church, by the church. And they distinguish what they call ecclesial theology from what academic theologians sometimes do, that we get caught up in questions that may not have any bearing on the church life. I think they're thinking about university academies, not about Trinity. <laughs> so I do have a standing challenge in my classes that if my students think that I'm on a doctrine that has no relevance to the pastoral ministry, please raise your hand and make me give an account of this doctrine. Why is it important for a prospective pastor to know? So far there have been few people who've taken me up on it, but I think they just need to be emboldened. Um, so I want to entitle my comments um, from a question that I'm taking from Luke 2.49. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? You'll remember the story. Jesus' parents lost their little boy, looked for him everywhere, found him in the temple. Now, and Jesus said, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Now, usually you'll see English translations that will say, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? If you check the Greek, though, a more literal translation would be, I was, about, I was in the things of my father, in tois tu patrus mu, in the things of my father. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? I understand why many translators choose house, because we know it was the temple. But literally, in the things of my father, I think that's a great description of the vocation of a pastor theologian, to be involved in the things of my father, as opposed to all the other things he could be involved in. <laughs> There's a lot of busy work to be done, right? But Jesus seemed to indicate that his particular calling was to be involved in the things of our Father. I'm not asking you to have a Messiah complex here. <laughs> um, I, not, you know, the work of redemption has been done once for all by our unique mediator. I'm not asking you to do that work. But I still think this phrase is a rich one to contemplate that sets the work of the pastor apart from every other people-oriented work. So, I have five headings that I'd like to address. First, why pastor theologian? Why even add that word after the name pastor? Well, it's to remind us that we are involved with God and everything else in relation to God. Because that's what theology is. It's about God and all things in relation to God. If somehow you're doing your pastoral work and it's not relating to God then you're not living up to this vocation of being a theologian. And you see, there are pastors who get caught up in that. There are other caring professions as well outside the ministry. But to work with people in the house of God concerning the things of God, this is what sets a pastor off. I think we need to add the term after pastor as well because, as uh, my friends at the Center for Pastor Theologians have said, the church is often theologically anemic, not enough red blood cells. Or maybe that's not the right image. Red blood cells is, speaks of pastoral energy. Maybe we're talking about little gray cells, the, the mind of the pastor as well. But we need both for healthy bodies of Christ. 
So I'm suggesting then that it helps to conceive your work as that of a pastor theologian, just to keep reminding yourselves that you have to do with God and everything else in relation to God. Jesus had priorities. We see it in this story, but we also see it in his teaching. He said to his disciples, seek ye first the things of the kingdom of God. And that's a thoroughly theological notion. Somehow our work as pastors should also be seeking to further the kingdom of God. And it raises theological questions. What is it? Where is it? How do we get there? On the bibliography that I gave you, one of the books that's forthcoming this spring treats this exact topic. Jeremy treats Seek First, How the Kingdom of God Changes Everything. I highly recommend that. The most important thing that he says about it is this. When you're seeking the kingdom first, it doesn't mean that you forget about everything else. Seeking the kingdom first puts everything else into a broader kingdom perspective. So I think it's a really helpful book, both for pastors and for disciples. And basically, what is the kingdom of God? Uh, Jeremy defines it as God's reign over God's people in God's place, which is uh, pretty much what a pastor is there to facilitate. (laughs) How do you make sure that God is actually ruling in the lives of your people? What does that look like? What does that mean? That's a theological project. Jesus cared about it. All his teaching was about the kingdom of God. So this is, again, very much part of a pastor theologian's work. And you have to... You have to think theologically about this because church, kingdom, are they identical? Uh, There's some theological questions there that need to be wrestled with. So that's why I think it's, those are some reasons why I think it's helpful to talk about a pastor theologian. There are other people who pastor. Even in, again, the secular world, there are pastors, counselors, caregivers, and so on. You're pastor theologians. I've also uh, talked about the pastor as a public theologian. Let me just say a word about that. First, public has to do with people. And academic theologians may or may not work with people. I mean, they have to to talk to students. That doesn't mean they're working with them. (laughs) But a public theologian really has to work with people. That is, you're doing theology with and in and for people. And that's why my hat goes off to you. I think academic theology is a lot easier. <laughs> I don't have, you know, people are messy, right? <laughs> you all know that. But you're doing theology with real people. I like the idea of the pastor as the public theologian. It's, uh, I'm reminded of what my French high school teacher said. He said the joy of teaching French was not simply the passion for the subject, although he was passionate about it. It wasn't simply the passion for his students, although he was passionate about them. His joy as a teacher, rather, was the joy of bringing the one passion to the other. And that's what theologians, pastor theologians get to do, right? You get to bring your passion for God and your passion for people together. 
So you're a public theologian. You're working with people, not necessarily an academic book-oriented people. And you're working with people to help them understand the faith, but also to live out the faith. You're working with people to create a house of the Lord. Talk about being about your father's business, right? David wanted to build a house. He wasn't allowed to. You're allowed. You're allowed to build the house of God. That's one thing a pastor as public theologian is. You're a builder or an artisan, maybe, in the house of the Lord. You're polishing living stones into a house for God, 1 Peter 2.5. And as you polish these stones into a house of God, you're also, I think, I would like to think of it as um, putting on or staging a live parable of the kingdom. I, I love the idea of the church as a parable of God's kingdom. Think about it. Wouldn't that be wonderful if people ask you about, what's the kingdom of God like? The kingdom of God is like, then you point to your congregation. <laughs> that would be wonderful to be able to do, right? It's, it's the vision. It's what we're going for. We're building up these living stones into a temple, into a holy nation, where people are competent citizens of the gospel. It's just such a great calling. Um, again, it's theological. What do all these things mean to be a citizen of the gospel? And then, still under public theologian, uh, we're helping people mature in their discipleship. People who know ultimately how to do what? What, are we, what, are, what should they know? I think they're trying, we want them to know how to live out the reality of the gospel, which is their life in Christ. Again, these are theological notions. What, how can the life of Christ be in another person? But this is what we need to be able to explain. Trevin Wax has written a book, I've also got it on this outline, called Eschatological Discipleship. It's not about a disciple who's always oriented to the last things. It's about disciples who are oriented to the kingdom of God in the present. Eschatological discipleship. So we're not just creating good people, model, model citizens, moral Americans. It's a far more exciting project than that. It's a theological project of creating parables of the kingdom and people who can live out the new reality that is in Christ in our present uh, old age. That's the big picture. Some roles for the pastor theologian. Uh, I've mentioned artisans in the house of God. You're building it up. Um, really, I think so much of this happens through the ministry of the word in its various forms. Let me just mention four forms the ministry of the word can take. First, it can be evangelism in the sense of proclaiming the gospel. I have a very high view of the potential of a sermon. <laughs> a sermon should rock people's worlds because you're speaking a kind of about reality into a world that doesn't get it or see it. Uh, this reality of what's in Christ. Uh, so you're you're proclaiming the gospel, and when I say the reality of what's in Christ, I mean you're talking about what the Father is doing in the Son through the power of the Spirit. Every sermon somehow should 
probably get round to that if it's going to be gospel-centered. And this is about reality. The other, the other description of the pastor I like is that ultimately you're ministers of reality. And uh, a lot of people think, ah, oh, you know, church, well, the real world's all outside. The real church is Monday through Saturday. That's an illusion. It's a popular illusion, but it's an illusion. So you're an evangelist. You're a catechist. Did you know that J.I. Packer prefers to think of himself as a catechist, not a theologian? You're, you're a catechist. You're teaching people as well. You're teaching the gospel, working out the implications, helping people to understand. And this is so important, you see, because in our society, everybody is getting indoctrinated with some form of doctrine or other. Don't think that you don't have anything to do with doctrine. If you don't, you're just letting all the false doctrines kind of put their roots down. Pastors have to cast out false doctrine and catechize their people with true doctrine. I mean, we're being indoctrinated. There are ideas out there that are being marketed, frankly, in many ways, especially during the halftime of the Super Bowl. But uh, they're marketing ideas. People are paying millions of dollars to market doctrine, right? What's a poor pastor to do? Well, a poor pastor has the power of the gospel, right? So don't worry about the fact you don't have million-dollar ads. You've got sermons. (laughs) And I really do believe in the power of a sermon. Liturgists. Now, many of you may not relate to the term liturgy at all, but by liturgy, I simply mean form and content of worship. <laughs> if your worship has content and form, and I hope it does, you've got some kind of liturgy. And the point is, this also can be a ministry of the word and a means of spiritual formation. You know, what we habitually do trains us to become a certain kind of people. Um, I have had to be remedially trained in a church that I have attended recently that when we have the peace, I didn't grow up having to give people the peace. Uh, I didn't find it natural or even comfortable. But now I I think I'm practicing the reality that is in Christ. (laughs) I'm just reminding people we are reconciled. We're celebrating a new reality as church. So now it's one of my favorite parts of of the service even if my introvert struggles a little bit. The Lord's Supper. Please don't be like one of my Trinity students who, when I asked, how often does your church celebrate the Lord's Supper, responded, I think we forgot about it. (laughs) He couldn't remember the last time they had celebrated the Lord's Supper. Uh, Don't be that person. The, The Lord's Supper is not just an empty ritual It's rich in theology. We're actually living out a oneness, a communion that has been made possible only in Christ. The world may laugh at a lot of what the church does, but you can't laugh at a multi-ethnic, very economically diverse church that comes together in fellowships over a meal that reckons, that has a life that is reconciled, where we forgive and are forgiven by one another. You can't laugh at that. 
And the world hasn't got there yet. We're not even close to getting to that kind of communion that the church. And that's one way the church is a parable of the kingdom, in, in practicing communion. And then, uh, fourthly, a, for, a fourth form of ministering the word is apologist, a defense of the gospel. And again, I think it's linked to not simply coming up with arguments, but by forming communities that live out the reality of the gospel. It's really difficult to argue with or dismiss a community that is honest and genuine and reconciled in Christ. Very hard. It's an argument for the gospel. Okay, moving on. The next question, how do pastor theologians make disciples? Again, I'm not an expert on these things. I have one burden here I'd like to share with you, and it's this. I don't think it's enough to tell people what they should believe. I wish it were that easy. As a parent, my goodness, do I wish it were that easy. <laughs> my children would be amazing. <laughs> but it isn't enough to tell them what they're supposed to believe or what they have to do. We have to shape hearts, which, by which I mean the whole person, mind, will, emotions. We, I, I think pastors are trying to pastor hearts, whole people, not just fill minds with right ideas. And listen to who's saying this. I'm an academic theologian. But here's what I care about. I care about, I'll use the term imagination, because it's the term that I use when I'm thinking about the heart attracted to a big picture. The heart, what we desire, the big picture that kind of moves us. Oftentimes, what grabs us and what attracts our heart is a moving story, or a story that, that we think is true, or a story that we think will lead to a, a happy ending for us. You see, stories are the form worldviews often take these days. They're a little bit like operating systems on a computer, except they operate on your imagination, on the inside, and they govern all the way you process experience. The, the program you run in your head colors everything. And my concern is that the reason discipleship is so hard is that so many people in our churches have been programmed by non-gospel stories. This is a burden I have, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's the only explanation I have as to why people say they agree with orthodoxy and then live in a way that doesn't correspond to the gospel. There's a disconnect at the level of the heart. So I do think pastors make disciples by programming them in the best possible sense of that term. That is, you have to deprogram them from the stories that have captured them, and then you have to engraft them into the only true story of the world there is. And you have to make sure they live in that story the right way. I also think that a pastor needs to be able to read the signs of the times. And I don't just mean weather. I mean, you have to know what culture is doing to people in your churches. And you have to help them to appreciate what culture is doing to them. It's usually taking us captive to some non-gospel story. 
I do believe that culture is probably the most powerful means of spiritual formation there is apart from the Holy Spirit. I think it's the powers and principalities we're wrestling with. So can we learn to read culture ourselves and help our congregations to see what culture is doing to them? It's shaping their spirits. It's molding their hearts. So my burden then is, and this is where you're on the front line here, my burden is that it's up to you to take every imagination captive to Christ. I want to put it in that way. Because again, it's not just thought. It's not just believing the right things. It's taking the imagination, the, the thing that fires people up, the story they're living for and living out. Charles Taylor has written a book called A Secular Age. It's a Harvard University Press scholarly work. Pastors, uh, I think it was Colin Hansen, has written a book with other pastors just talking about how important that book has been to their ministries. But basically what Taylor says is what it means to be secular is to have an imagination that thinks reality is simply this worldly. That the real, the real reality is physical causes and physical forces and material things. If you, believe, if you have that picture in your mind, you're secular. So here's my question. Do you have secular congregants? Is that the picture in their mind? I mean, I know they believe in God. They want to believe in it. And I think they, many may sincerely want to believe and think they believe. The point is, is the gospel story the program that runs their life? Or are they running a secular story? Who's, who's captured your congregation's imaginations? I think we need to disciple imaginations. That's the long and short of it. And I think that uh, sola scriptura, which I firmly believe in, scripture alone should be the supreme authority. We need to think through sola scriptura when it comes to the life of the imagination. Okay, and then uh, my last point is how, and this is the one I think you wanted me to ask, uh, how can pastors grow into their role as theologians? And uh, this is, again, Things I've just thought about as I had to, and you, I'm sure this group has other ideas. I have six suggestions. One, the first is minister by the right metaphors. By that I mean is, what image of your own role do you have in your head? What, what is your self-conception as a pastor? Do you think you're a, an administrator in the first instance, uh, a therapist, an entertainer? What is the picture? What is the metaphor you're ministering by? I would suggest you might want to think of yourselves as fitness trainers for the body of Christ. I'm going to say more about that in June in, in our summer conference. But the body of Christ, as you know, is one of the most common metaphors for the church. And people in our society are very concerned about physical fitness. But are we spiritually fit? Do you, is that, do you see your role as helping to equip people to spiritual fitness? What does that even mean? In any case, what is the metaphor you're ministering by? Second, make time for study, for serious Bible study and serious theology study. Make some time for it. Um, I know this is tough. Uh, one of the funny stories that circulates in the Center for Pastor Theologians is by one of the founding 
pastors and theologians. He was reading a theologian in his office, studying with a book in front of his face, and an elder walked by his office, poked his head in the door and said, I don't hear a ministry happening. <laughs> I don't hear ministry happening. In other words, the, the suggestion was reading a book doesn't have anything to do with Christian ministry. That's the short view, I think. Um, that's the short view. But make time for study. I mean, the, uh, the issues that the church is up against are often complex. Scripture isn't always easy to understand and to read. Um, don't apologize for making some time for study. It will repay itself because you'll have something to give, we hope. Third, if, that's, if making time for study is difficult, meet with other pastors in your area and form a reading group or a discussion group. I think unless you're out of the boondocks, you're, you're going to be around other pastors at some point, and um, hopefully you can hold each other accountable. Fourthly, read about great pastor theologians from the past. It's always helpful to have concrete models. I know our world is different than Calvin's world, but there are some wonderful examples before us. And uh, I didn't put it on this list on the bibliography, but you should probably add this title, Andrew Purvis, P-U-R-V-E-S, P-U-R-V-E-S, has written Pastoral Theology in the Classical Tradition. And it's a really good study of some classics in pastoral theology, like Richard Baxter is the Reformed pastor, to take just one example. Fifth of my six suggestions, and I know this is a biblical suggestion, maybe the other ones I need to establish their bona fides, but this is biblical, is, is pray without ceasing. <laughs> pray without ceasing, because to pray is to pay attention to God. It's to speak to and to listen to God. And there's nothing like prayer that puts things in a different perspective, the perspective of eternity. So it's a very theological thing to do, to pray. Maybe the most theological thing to do. Pray without ceasing. It's one way we make sure we're focused on our Father's business. And then lastly, and this is, this is controversial, and this will require greater discussion that we have time for now. But it's, it's learn to read the Bible theologically. And in parenthesis, I have something you may not have learned in seminary. <laughs> and again, that's the controversial part, because many of you will have taken biblical languages and done exegesis. And so is that what I mean? Or do I mean something different? Well, I, let me just go back to where I began. Jesus was about his father's business when he read in a very controversial way from a scroll that came from Isaiah. Do you remember that? It is one of his earliest public acts, Luke 4, 16 to 30. He interpreted scripture theologically and he got in trouble for it. And at the end of his life, still in Luke, he met disciples on the road to Emmaus and, quote, interpreted to them the things concerning himself, beginning with Moses and the prophets. That was perhaps controversial too. I think theology begins with reading the Old Testament 
as the precursor to the story of Jesus. That is, theology begins when we read the Old Testament and the story of Jesus together. That's Historically, that is where theology began. That's where all the arguments began. Is the God of the Old Testament the God of the New? And I, meant, I wanted to finish with that because it came to my attention a couple months ago that a leading pastor said something to the effect that the Old Testament wasn't necessary for the church. I'm not sure I got that quote right. Unhitch, yeah. Do not unhitch your Christological wagon from the Old Testament. Thank you for listening to this episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast. You can find more episodes by searching EFCA Theology Podcast in any podcast app or on the web at efca.org slash podcast. Thank you.